Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I will be reading Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. To another, Jesus said, Follow Me. And He said, Lord, let Me first go and bury My Father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, our prayer is that Your words delivered to us through Your servant Luke, would penetrate, save, sanctify, foment an assurance of joy in the Gospel that saves us unto You forever. So that we will know that there's genuine fruit of following You. Do this to the glory of Your name, to the glory of Your cross, and to the salvation and sanctification and purifying of our souls. Amen. In our journey through the Gospel of Luke, we come now to chapter 9, verse 51. And This verse right here is a major transition in Luke's mind and what he's doing in laying out his narrative. When Jesus came on the scene in his ministry starting in chapter 4, all the way through chapter 9 verse 50, all of the ministry that Luke is giving to us and the structure of the way he's putting it has been up north in the region of Galilee. And now we come to verse 51. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. This here now is the beginning of ten long chapters of Jesus doing ministry, but In the backdrop of all of that is that he is on the road to Jerusalem. And if you just look through the next ten chapters, Luke just keeps giving these hints, these markers. This is exactly the context of Jesus' words and his saying. You just read again and again, and then on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus saying, we're going to Jerusalem because it's doesn't happen that prophets perish outside of Jerusalem. Again, on the way to Jerusalem. All the way through the next ten chapters. Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, He said to them, You see, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So, here's the transition point. What Luke is doing now for us, the readers, is that he is saying that now, in a different way than before in his ministry in Galilee for the last couple of years, now Jerusalem looms heavy and large in Jesus' thoughts. Because Jerusalem, look at the text, is where He will be taken up. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, that little phrase, it means where He will be betrayed, beaten, slaughtered on a cross, resurrected the third day and to sin five weeks later. When that, that's what He has in front of Him. This is what it means for His exodus, His to be taken up where He in Jerusalem will accomplish redemption. And so, as the verse says, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. If that set His face is just a Hebrew idiom. Jesus was determined to fulfill His purpose. This turning point of now, on the road to Jerusalem, I don't know, it's taken a year to, for, since chapter 4, so who knows how long we're going to be on the road to Jerusalem. But this is huge in understanding the rest of our passage this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, the Savior, the treasure of the world? Yes, to follow Him. And with this Jerusalem thing, what does it mean? Okay, that's Him, and He's going somewhere. What does it mean to follow Him to Jerusalem? In summary, what we're going to see here in these two passages with the Samaritan village and then Jesus encountering three men on the road is that what it means, first of all, is this. That those who follow Him, who are captured by Him in the Gospel and proclaim that Gospel, do not retaliate against those who reject that Gospel against those who reject their Savior. They instead show mercy to them. And then, on the road we'll see, to those who say, I will follow you, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Or, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Or, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, can you imagine what a marketing consultant would have said to Jesus? You're trying to build a following, aren't you? Jesus, you even told one of these guys, you initiated, follow me. This is not the way to go about it. Jesus' idea of what it means to follow Him sounds so different than what passes as the Christian life in many conservative evangelical churches. A, a cartoon that was published in Leadership Magazine. Leadership is a Christian magazine for church leader types. There was a cartoon that was published and there was a church and then there's a big sign that read, quote, The Light Church. That's L-I-T-E. You know, a play on commercials. Light beer. The Light Church. Church, 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5% tithe. 
15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship service. We have only eight commandments. Your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you wanted in a church and less. It's funny. But it's sad funny because it reflects truth about the strategy of many of us Christians in doing church life. Lower the standards because we want to attract and keep attenders. And it causes many of us to be afraid to preach against sin and sin nature. And and do not be clear on what the New Testament gives us in clarity about the Gospel. That in Jesus Christ, God's holy, perfect, righteous anger in judicial wrath against us was diverted and poured out on the innocent one because of our sin. Where God's wrath was appeased in Christ. You you talk like that and you may repel those you want to captivate and draw. And therefore you control what you say and the content by pretty much doing more topical sermons and topical series because you can control what you're going to say as opposed to just working through books of the Bible and being really honest with text because there might be some things you might not want to advertise because you want people to buy your product. And you certainly get rid of church membership because... You're after attenders. You're not not after the visible expression of a local body of Christ over against the world. Those who have covenanted together to live such a way before Christ. And you certainly don't want to define saving faith. You don't want to break it down and say there is a type of confession of faith that, that, that in the Bible makes it clear is not the faith of a person who when they die will be in heaven. Don't, don't, don't clarify what a saving faith is as opposed to the kind that James talks about. In other words, bottom line is don't make it hard. Sell your product. You want people to walk into 7-Eleven, open the cooler, and choose your six-pack. This is why there are just tons of American evangelical Christians who don't know the basic Christian doctrines of Scripture and live lives that are reflective of the world around them as if nothing is different. It's this type of mentality that I had a conversation with someone recently. And and here's the question that I asked when I heard it. What is it that allowed this mentality in an evangelical church where in a youth group where someone is free to share with a couple other people from youth group that they're having sex with their boyfriend. It's not that Christians don't sin. We saw sin. Okay. And it's not, the point was it wasn't a confession like, help me, plead with me. This is a real danger for me. It was as if this is a safe place to say that that's what you're doing. And you're going to continue to do it and you'll come back to youth group next week. What is it that has created such a mentality? Bible words. Jesus' words fall so lightly upon millions of evangelicals. 
And so, here's the question of our text. What, is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? First, we'll look at the Samaritan passage for, for, for a moment. And what it's going to show us there is to follow Jesus is not what James and John had in mind. To follow Jesus is to proclaim the gospel. It is to live the gospel. It, has to, it is to have Christ, the one you're following, as a center. And when in this world you're rejected or persecuted because of it, you do not lash out and retaliate. And I also think that Luke has this right here in this story before the follow me passages we're going to see in order to illustrate. To follow me, Jesus is saying, and here's the illustration, it will mean many times you won't have a place to sleep because they'll reject you. It won't be a smooth road. Look at chapter 9 of Luke. Start with verse 52. And Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans in order to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Oh, that's, that, those are fighting words right there. Samaria is this big land in between Galilee and Judea where Jerusalem is and where Jesus is going. Jesus has a large entourage at this point. Go ahead and he's going to have, you're going to see throughout on the world to Jerusalem he's going to have people go out and, 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 and preach the gospel and proclaim and prepare for Jesus himself to come and to minister and to heal. And this is what's going to be going on for months. And so he sends an advance party to make arrangements in this village which happens to be a village of the Samaritans. This mutual hatred, not an overstatement, between the Samaritans and the Jews, at this point, right here, has already been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. See, if you know your Old Testament history, in the northern kingdom, after the kingdoms were split, in the northern kingdom, and up in Samaria, where those Jews in the northern kingdom were conquered by Assyria and wiped out, eventually the Jews that were left intermarried with the Assyrians. And ever since they've been called by more pure Jews as half-breeds, and then their religious uh, directions were different. The Jews not only called them half-breeds, but essentially heretics, religious apostates. And the Samaritans returned the compliment to them. The Samaritans built a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, they just hated it. And they had their own temple, which they deemed to be the place to worship God on Mount Gerizim. Now, at this point, it doesn't exist anymore because the Jews destroyed it about 150 years before Jesus' time. The Jews, in their liturgy, which was very different than the Samaritans' liturgy, the Samaritans were just, just they accepted Moses' books. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The rest they didn't accept. The Jews, in their liturgy, had special places to pray against the Samaritans. Pleading to God that they would never be allowed to enter eternal life. Okay, you got a picture now? Okay. Jesus is a Jew, not a Samaritan. His twelve apostles are Jews. The, who knows, 150, 200, 400 followers right now, disciples, are Jews. Yeah, so that makes James and John, his brother, Jews. Sinful Jews. And therefore, their response makes a lot of sense. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, okay. 
Where did they get? Okay, they know, they know the Bible pretty well. So they know Elijah. And God allowed Elijah two times to call fire down and destroy his enemies. And this, so this is what James and John are doing. See, you talk about culturized hatred. It's there. So what they're really saying is, Jesus, please, please let us kill him. And Jesus says, essentially, you guys just don't get it yet. Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He didn't just say no. He just rebuked them because the entire heart and the spirit of what they were saying was totally out of tune with what Jesus came to do. Now, out of thousands of Greek manuscripts, there's numbers of manuscripts that have other words that Jesus said at this place. And they go like this. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. So, at the core, the way that relates to all of us, is that in following Jesus, there is no room for an angry, mean-spirited person preaching hell and damnation with the spirit of which, and I wish you would go there. But instead, it is the truth that hell Israel, that those of us who are being saved from what we deserved, hell, plead with those, even as they're rejecting you. Then Jesus gives three clarifying statements about what it means further to follow Him. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes, they have holes. It's their home. Birds of the air, they have homes. They they have nests. But I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. What's he doing? See, because of Jesus' response, I think that the picture here is that this guy was impetuous. He has not thought very deeply about the implications of what he's saying. That his words, I will follow you anywhere, are born out of inexperience and emotionalism. And so that's why Jesus didn't say, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. Oh, wow, good, great, come on in, sign a card. You're one of us. He didn't do that. He didn't say, well, come on in, sign a card, you're one of us. Later on, we'll have little classes on what Christianity is really about, but we want to get you in the door first. He didn't do that. But instead, he sensed that this guy was shallow, impulsive, and idealistic. And so he spelled out more clearly for this guy what it meant to follow him. That it may mean giving up a lot of stuff. It may mean forsaking a lot of things that bring you comfort in life. That's why he said, foxes, they have holes. Birds, they have their nest. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, so what does he mean? What do you mean, Jesus, you never had a pillow? We know from Luke already, Jesus has been sleeping in people's houses. We know that he either owned or rented his own home in Capernaum. This stuff's been clear. They use hotels. They use inns. N in Mark 10, 
verses 29 and 30, Jesus says to His disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, property, for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, so when Jesus says, the Son of Man, I have nowhere to lay my head. Okay, what is He getting at? What does He mean? What is He trying to tell this guy and us? I think He's saying in response, I'll follow you anywhere. He's responding, Will you really follow me? What about your house, your home, your earthly security, your temporal comfort? He's saying, I, Jesus, the things we've already seen in Luke, the Christ, the one that James and John, you were there, you heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son at the transfiguration, this one, I, the treasure of the world, I am on the road to Jerusalem. Are you sure that I am that much of a treasure to you, that you will follow me? That's what he's saying. In other words, it means these words of His. I have nowhere to lay my head. You're going to follow me? That this world is not your home. It means that there will be discomfort. It means that following Him may bring to you rejection you would not otherwise have. It means count the cost before you flippantly say, I'll follow you, Jesus. Because emotional rhetoric that is spurred on by the music or a weekend at the youth camp will not carry you through the road to Jerusalem. Then, Jesus Himself says to another guy in verse 59, You, follow Me. But notice, that the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Whew. This guy's a radical man. Notice that the man did not say, my dad just died. You could read that in there, but I don't think that's his point. See, if his dad had just died like the day before, a week ago, as a Jew, no, he didn't die a week ago. You've got so much time to get them into the tomb and, and done with. If he had just died that morning or the day before, he'd be taking care of arrangements. He wouldn't be out here on the road saying to Jesus, or being able to have Jesus say to him, follow me. He wouldn't be there. He'd have been dealing with this issue. In other words, apparently he's talking about an elderly dad. I'm taking care of... And a lot of us are in that stage with elderly parents. Okay, he's not dead yet. I think I have a responsibility to my dad. Let me go deal with that first and I'll come and follow you. You know, all that you know, fifth commandment stuff, like honor your father in mother, I think that's the situation. This, this is why this is... Jesus, what are you saying here? <laughs> I don't think Jesus is negating the Ten Commandments here. Nor the fifth of the ten. Honor your mother and your father. He said He came to fulfill them, not to abolish them. Okay. But, just with, without anything else, what we have seen in Luke... In a summary, it's clearly this is what's going on. Yahweh, the God of Moses, the God of the Ten Commandments, 
in His true humanity. Walking down this road is the one who said to this guy, follow me. Preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the man says, not yet. That's the tension of the text. If our commitment to Jesus and the urgency of heaven and hell and life and death about the gospel of the kingdom of God, if it's not first, then somehow we got things twisted. So Jesus replies, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think what he means is, leave those who are not born again. They don't know me right now. They're not alive spiritually. Leave those dead to deal with this. In this case, look who's before you. Your dad can be taken care of. Leave the spiritually dead to take care of that issue right now. I'm calling you to come and follow me. And therefore, in that case, that is the greater Good. The commentator, Daryl Bott, I think sums it up well, saying, in essence, a best excuse. In fact, a reasonable one has been submitted for postponing discipleship. And nevertheless, Jesus rejects the excuse. Or he goes on to say, Many, a would-be follower of Jesus has pleaded the requirements of social obligation or prior business demands as an excuse for not meeting the imperative of obedience. Jesus rejects such excuses. See, here's the bottom line, I think. Marriage, working on marriage, if you're married, becoming a better husband and a better wife, that's important. Family life, that's important. I'm all for raising kids with a stay-at-home mom, if that's possible. I'm all for homeschooling if parents feel called and they want to do that. I love family values. I think Jesus does too. <laughs> but I think the point is not to put even the best things and important things down here first in its center in your life where Christ and Christ alone and the gospel and the purity of it belong. Hmm. I could pause for a half an hour, have quiet, think. All right, so that's why we have home groups. Bring it up and we'll figure out how to do this. Then, the third situation. There's a third guy now. He offers, again, to follow Jesus, and yet he added a provision. Verse 61. And yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, it seems like a reasonable and a minor Request, doesn't it? And he's got Bible in his head here too. You remember Elijah? And then there's Elisha. There was his cloak over him. Elisha's going to get mentored by Elijah. And Elisha, please, can I go kiss my mom and dad goodbye? And okay, so he's allowed to kiss his mom and dad goodbye. And Jesus says, you're not. <laughs> to, to this guy. Because when we read how he responded here in a moment, 
What Jesus is really doing to him and to all of us down the line is giving a warning because he sees the danger in the statement that the guy made. He sees the danger of saying, I will follow you. But first, something else. To come to Christ. To follow the only Savior. Follow Him where? Wherever. Must. Always. Come first. Because the essence of new life in Christ, as opposed to remaining spiritually dead. Remember how Paul put it, we are being called out of darkness into His marvelous light. It is to be in the world still, yes. But something's different. We're not of the world. And so, this guy says, I will follow you, and Jesus' response is not a response of, wow, I'm really thrilled. Get this guy signed up with our group. Because he knows that many Many people will give initial signs of, yes, I'm ready to follow. Only later to long and desire the things of the world. After the excitement of these hundreds of people walking with this Galilean preacher wears off. And so Jesus says to the guy, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So they, they know farming. So they know what it is to have a plow and have that donkey pull it. You have to be straightforward to make sure your furrows are, are straight for your planting. So you just, okay, they got that. He says, okay, you can't be looking back because you're going to mess up your entire farmland. Okay. No one who metaphorically says, I'll follow you! And you're looking back to what He's calling you out of. is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a warning to not be like Israel. Yes, God, Yahweh, has delivered me and us from Egypt. <laughs> Three days later, I'm hungry. Murmur, murmur, murmur. I wish we could go back to Egypt, Moses. They had onions and garlic. It's a warning to not be like Lot's wife and to be destroyed. Those who, who long after the things that they've left behind who months and years are just always dreaming about the things that the path of Christ has taken them away from, this is a precious, merciful wake-up warning to followers. Now, I just have to think, over the last couple thousand years, how many fellow brothers and sisters has like this passage here. Jesus is just stunning. <laughs> Responses. Been an encouragement to people that have gone through so much. I want to just give, I want to give one example. Quoting from uh, the commentator Kent Hughes. He tells this story. William W. Borden was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. In 1904 and 1905, at the age of 18, he traveled around the world. This was followed by a brilliant education at Yale and then Princeton Seminary, where he committed his life to seek to win the Muslims in China to Christ. Before he left, Borden gave away some $500,000, equivalent to $10 million 
today. And he served at the age of 23 as a trustee of Moody Bible Institute. In 1913, in his 26th year, he left for Egypt and never looked back. It was the final year of his life. Because in Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis. As he lay dying, he scribbled this note. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. That is the kind of attitude Christ was calling for in Luke chapter 9. So, what's really at the, the design underneath? Something's going on. I got it. Underneath. What is Jesus doing here? What, what is His purpose and His design in these radical statements? Well, at the core... He's unfolding genuine saving faith. That genuine saving faith is a life transformative miracle. It is deep seated change of the heart that affects all three of these guys' situations. Jesus, by responding the way he does in our text, is teaching. And he's testing. He's teaching them and us that the road of following him to the cross into Jerusalem is not always gravy in this world. There's persecution and pain and setback and having Samaritans not welcome you. And he's testing them to see if he Himself is really their greatest treasure. They say, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, really? Do you love me and treasure me that much? Okay, I'll show you what it will cost. That's the question that Jesus poses to every single one of us here this morning. He says to you, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy the field. Jesus says to them and to us, would you sell your home? Would you sell it to get me? If I, if, if I called you to follow me, I'm going to be very ambiguous because I want the Holy Spirit to be clear. If He calls you to follow Him there, this might be a place. It might just have to do with your disobedience to clear Scripture. If He calls you to follow Him there or here or away from that hard-heartedness in that area, He says, Am I worth it. As you read Jesus' words, as you read the Word of God, as you open up Scripture, and you read things like flee, run away from, as if in terror from fornication, from backbiting, Malicious gossip. Hatred. Indifference. From malice of all time. 
When you read, love not the world nor the things in the world. Jesus is asking the question in our text, do you really treasure Me above those things? You see, to follow Christ is what He's doing. He's just teaching. He's just testing and teaching and teaching and testing like He does so well. Some of you know I posted on our on the church blog, uh, J.I. Packer wrote a short article. It was like, yes, that's what I think has been happening in the last year in this church with going through the Gospel of Luke. You know, because some of us are so have been so much raised up on Paul, and I love Paul, and I love to exegete Paul, and theology's laid out. And he made some comments, and it's so, I just found it so true now dealing with the Gospel of Luke for a year. And then you get face to face with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid out in the Gospels. It is stunningly shocking. And what he's really doing is all that theology that he gave to us through Paul, for instance, you just get the narrative of what it means walking out in real life. And that's what he's doing right here. You could say his brother James, who would later talk about a faith that's no saving faith. All Jesus is doing in these comments is illustrating exactly what he's going to have his brother write. Much later. His point is that to follow Christ, what it is to be a Christian, is not merely an emotional response that's stirred up it's some camp meeting or youth group retreat or something. That it is a miracle of God to follow Him. The way Jesus said it is that unless a person is born again, they cannot see. You cannot enter. You certainly cannot love the kingdom of God. And then... If you find yourself entering and having love, you realize something happened prior to that. It caused you to be born again. Your heart has been made alive. You're no longer the dead left to bury the dead. You're alive. Right now, come do this because I made you alive. See, we have to distinguish because of the way I started it. Remember the sign at the beginning of the church? Okay, ha ha, real funny. We don't need as Christians to ever go that way. We can trust the Gospel. See, professions of faith are easy to get for religious salesmen. But saving faith is a work of God in the hearing of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that faith has evidences. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's just drawing out those evidences in this text. The point of Jesus' tough words with these three men, it's not to create some universal laws. Okay, you're following Christ? That means you can't have a home or a place to lay your head. That's not the point. Oh, you follow Christ? Make sure you don't take care of your elderly parent. That's not at all the point. It's not what He's doing. The point was true then, and it's true this morning. Jesus knows the idols that are lurking in our hearts. Remember the rich young ruler? That's what he was doing. I think I got it. I want eternal life. One more thing, Jesus says. You go and sell everything you have. And give it away. What's he doing? That is not a universal law of Christianity. Because you had another situation, Jesus, with Zacchaeus, or Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He was fairly wealthy too. And Zacchaeus says, I gave away 50%, not 100. And Jesus was thrilled with that. The point that we see in Jesus' ministry and what He does in our lives today is that He is constantly on a search 
and destroy mission against the idols of our hearts. Jesus always knows what idolatries are there this week in our hearts. How our desires for other things are superseding our desire for enjoying Him in the Gospel in Christ. And He loves us too much not to be working on us right now. This morning. He is calling some of us to repent in that area or this other particular area. He's calling some of us, we know it, to obedience. where we have been disobedient. But he's not just saying, Christian, just do it. He's saying, follow me. He's saying, Taste and see in following me that I am much better than what you have been trusting in over me. Close your eyes as the music plays. the next 45 seconds or so before we sing let the Holy Spirit work sanctifying loving energizing calling to a deeper more intimate enjoyment